You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. It was the night before Good Friday. Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible tells us that Jesus withdraws by himself, and he kneels down, and he prays. This is his prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus then proceeds, the Bible tells us, the Gospels tell us, Jesus then proceeds to be in such agony in this moment, such earnest prayer, that the text says that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. What an absolutely, I mean, just live in that text for a moment. Just just place yourself there. What a profound scene. What an incredibly deep moment that is as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, begins to grasp what is about to take place as he is about to take on the sins and judgment of the world, although he is perfect and has done nothing wrong. He says, remove this cup from me. What is this cup that he refers to? Whatever it is, it is massively significant to Christ and massively, again, uh, deep in its sincerity, but also its severity. It's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of wrath as proven by many Old Testament passages prophesying to this moment. This cup he speaks of is the cup of the atonement. The death and judgment Christ would have to undergo in order that we might live. The the cup he might drink that you and I might have life. Remember, Jesus was not afraid of the physical death that came upon him, as awful as that will be. The ultimate thing he was intensely aware of was the judgment of the cross. That's why Charles Spurgeon said this on the screen for you. He said, I'm never afraid of exaggeration when I speak of my Lord and what he endured. All hell was distilled into that cup. I mean, just think about that right now. You say, oh, my week's been pretty hard. I, I don't doubt your week's been hard. I just think you need to reflect on what Christ just, what he did for us on Good Friday. All of hell was distilled into that cup of which our God and Savior Jesus Christ was made to drink. No wonder he said, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. But then in the end, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's why today's message is so critical and can be so powerful. Our message title today is Atonement Number Three, that we deserve God's wrath, propitiation. 
We deserve God's wrath. Today's message is all about that propitiation. I want to get our series outline on the screen for us here just to remember where we have been. Week number one, we deserve to die, sacrifice. These are the four results of the atonement. We're walking through the doctrine of the atonement, how it applies to us. Last week, Pastor Carl did so well. We separated from God, reconciliation, that doctrine. And today, here, here we are. We deserve to bear God's wrath, a heavy one, such an important one, a mind-blowing one. Jesus became our propitiation became our propitiation let's get our bibles open to romans chapter 3 please romans chapter 3 we'll be looking at a passage which we'll then boil down to a verse or half a verse which we'll then boil down really to a phrase within that verse romans chapter 3 verse 21 verse 21 but But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, notice the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption next week that is in Christ Jesus. Here we go. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was, notice, to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're going to do something a little bit different this week. We're going to use a visual outline as we go through this passage. I've been encouraged by this. We're going to take five phrases from the first half of verse 25. And then we're going to look at them by asking five questions regarding our thesis of propitiation. So five phrases in verse 25 with five questions that will help us Unpack that. So here's the first question on the screen for you beside me and behind me. First question is what? And the answer to that is our propitiation, verse 25. What? What are we talking about today? Essentially, when you boil it down, it's those two words, uh, propitiation. So stare at verse 25, and you see that phrase, a propitiation, a very important theological term that is known to some right now, but unfamiliar to others. Let's learn together. Let's learn, let's grow, let's be in awe, let's let's be humble, let's fill ourselves with the worship of Christ and what he's done for us as he became our propitiation. Before we go any further, though, let's define propitiation. Wayne Grudem, in his incredible book, Systematic Theology, also Bible Doctrine, he defines propitiation as this, again, on the screen. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath. When you think of the term propitiation, always think God's wrath. That's what it's dealing with. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath in the end, to the end. Notice, and here's the result. And in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Can you say big deal? I mean, that's, that's massive. Jesus became our propitiation to turn God's wrath towards us. Again, we'll see rightly so. And now, instead, we have the favor of God Instead of his judgment. Just take a moment to try to digest that truth. 
And the first question I have in terms of understanding propitiation, the question I want to ask in this passage, in this doctrine is, why does God's wrath need to be propitiated at the cross? Why do we sing in our songs verses like, he took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross? Here's why. J.I. Packer said it this way. He says, listen carefully, God's wrath is his righteousness, listen, listen, reacting against unrighteousness. God's wrath is his righteousness reacting against sinful unrighteousness. So God's wrath is his justice against sin. Think of it. It's his character of perfect holiness obliterating sins from his sight. Uh, Many, many modern movies in our day uh, they're, they're all seen to be good versus evil. These epic metaphors, illustrations, storylines of good versus evil. Because that's all within our hearts. That's all within our souls is who we are. And often what you'll see is, you'll see at the end, this, this wicked evil often representing a form of darkness. And then the light will come in near the end of the movie or at some point, And the light will shine with utter purity and radiance and holiness and just, it's, it's such a powerful light. It shines on the screen. And the, and the Savior arrives, so to speak. And the light in its radiance shines. And darkness in that moment is obliterated by the light. Darkness is sent to run or flee or it's utterly decimated and destroyed because the darkness cannot withstand the purity and the holiness and the power and the radiance of the light that shines and and just envelops all in its path. In a sense, that's an illustration of the holiness found in the wrath of God. It shines so powerfully, it just destroys all sin in its path. It's not an outburst of sinful anger. It's a demonstration and display of holiness and perfection. And listen, hatred then for sin and darkness and evil. Just gives us a a little bit more of a greater understanding of the purity of God's righteous wrath and righteous anger. It's a God of justice that we serve and a God of holiness. And a God, listen, who understands he intensely hates sin. John Stott said it this way. Again, I want to take some time. I want to move slowly here because... We're pausing in Scripture and we're trying to deal with a difficult topic but has so much depth and applies to our lives for a love of the gospel in Jesus. John Stott said this, he says, in his amazing book, The Cross of Christ, he says, God's holiness exposes sin, but his wrath opposes it. So that's really helpful. The holiness of God is what, think of um, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah in the temple. My lips are unclean, my lips are unclean. He sees the holiness of God in the temple. And immediately his sin is so exposed. But the wrath of God opposes sin. It must if God's true to his character. So sin cannot approach God, and God cannot tolerate sin. That's why in the second last chapter of the Bible in Revelation, Revelation says not one unclean thing will enter into heaven. Not one. Not one sin gets into heaven. Why? This is why. Because God cannot tolerate sin. 
In fact, not just can he not tolerate it, he opposes it in his very being, the essence of who he is. Powerful thoughts. So God rightly in perfection, he intensely hates sin. Here's a question, do you hate sin? I hate sin. The book of Romans itself commands us to abhor what is evil, hate what is evil, love what is good. I hate sin, listen, look, look here. I hate sin here first, man, I hate it, I hate it. I hate sin in this world too, though. You just see the destruction, and you see so many lives being brought to the path of hell itself. You hate sin. So imagine that's us, and we're called to hate sin. Imagine then being a perfect and holy, sovereign, majestic God who doesn't have one ounce of evil within him whatsoever, a God of unapproachable, unapproachable light, it says. Imagine how much he then should hate sin if you and I hate sin. Let's also remember as we start to speak of God's wrath and related to God's anger, God is not like us who have mood swings. We often appropriate or we try to resonate or relate our understanding of wrath or anger with how we experience as finite sinful human beings and then we place that upon God. Don't do that. And he's so far apart from us. He's not like, I'm having a good day one day and a bad day the next day, and we lose our temper in rage against... That's not what's happening with our God. He is perfectly holy, he is perfectly loving, and he is perfectly just. Again, in his righteous, perfect anger, there's not a good day, bad day, he explodes and loses on someone. If he is who he says he is, he needs to be a God of justice, including righteous anger seen in his righteous wrath, which is pure and doesn't be inconsistent with his love. They all come together in his perfect character. Do not place our sinfulness upon a holy God. Humans do it all the time. He is so transcendent, apart, above, holy. His wrath, his anger, his righteousness, his love, it's, it's all in his perfect character. Can you think about this too as you think about Jesus becoming our propitiation to appease the wrath of God. Can you imagine if we served the God that did not hate sin? You would be serving God. Wayne Grudem says this way, then you would be, he would then be a God either delighted in sin or just simply wasn't bothered by it at all. Now, can you imagine that? You might as well worship Satan. If our God didn't, where's the hope of justice? Where's the hope of perfect glory? Where's the hope really of heaven? If you have a God who's like, ah, sin's no big deal or even a God who delighted in sin, that would, not, that would not be a God I would want to serve at all. The Bible tells us our God is a God of perfect holiness and a God who is bothered by sin and a God who will deal with all evil when the day comes and a God who is so filled with love he sent his son to pay for our sin. See, this is why the doctrine of propitiation is so essential. You have the love of a God of justice and a God of love. When Jesus becomes our propitiation, Jesus took on the wrath of God against sin, thereby satisfying, we sing that, the wrath of God in Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied. On him was every sin was laid. And this is why when you come to propitiation within the atonement, we believe here at this church that a gospel without propitiation is a gospel that fails to fully explain the depths of the atonement biblically. 
And just to be as clear as I can, I want you to see our context of God's wrath in the early chapters of Romans as it culminates in Romans chapter 3 and beyond as well. Turn for a second to Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Let's be good students of the Bible. Romans 1 verse 18. Uh, Listen to the pages turning. God bless you. I love that. It's hard for your smartphone to make that sound, eh? They should have a little, a little sound effect that sounds like the page is turning. That might make me a little more inclined. Romans 1 verse 18, I'm showing you the context of what I'm not making up here today. Romans 1 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is telling us right here, Setting up our context today, the wrath of God is operative in our world today. You say, how is it? If you continue to read Romans chapter 1, it says, God has given up the debased minds of sinful unrighteousness. He's hardened their hearts. He's like, you want evil? I'll give you that. You will reap what you sow. You want it? You want to reject me? You're going to spit in my face? You're going to suppress the truth? You know in your hearts, again, there's a God. You know, you know the right from wrong internally in your moral conscience, but you're going to put that aside? Then I'm going to give you up to these things. That is a form of God's wrath, even operating in our world today. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 5. This is serious. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, listen, listen, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. How sobering is that? How clear is that? That wrath is being stored up for when Christ returns to deal with this once and for all. Look at Romans 2 verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Look at Romans 3 verse 9. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, Paul says. Romans 3, 9. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, every human being ever, are under sin, are under the righteous wrath, judgment, righteous anger of God. All, all human beings who ever lived. Again, I want you to see how Paul's argument here, Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, it's building up to Romans 3, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. The solution to the wrath of God is Christ dying on the cross to become our propitiation. And let's see some some, some post-cross reflection. Romans 5, verse 9. Look Look at Romans 5, verse 9. And notice Romans 5, verse 8, a verse that we probably know well. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now look at, look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? The first question is what? And the answer is a propitiation. Jesus takes on the wrath of God. He drinks the cup of suffering so that you and I don't have to if we receive the grace found in Christ and his gospel by faith. 
You know, it's so interesting to me, and it's so beautiful to me, and it's so sobering to me. In every great revival over history, in every great revival, when the Holy Spirit shows up in ways that are so unusual, there is one a common thing that is, that is literally screamed out or cried out among the people who grasp a sincere sense of the holiness of God. In every, in every major revival, you literally have people that are brought into such an awareness of the holiness of God. They are crying, they are weeping on their knees at the altar again, and they are crying out, have mercy have mercy on me. And they're literally hanging on to the pant leg of the preacher saying, how can I be saved? Tell me how I can be saved with everything in them. Show me the path to mercy because they are so utterly aware of the holiness and the presence of God that they see their sin and they see the judgment and they know they deserve it. And then everything within them is crying desperately out, let me know how to be saved. Let me know how to receive my Savior. The agony, the sincerity. We are so far from that in our day. I am so far from that. Well, we are like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, and you do see a glimpse of the holiness of God, all our casualness in our life, all our petty pursuits, all the ridiculous selflessness, all our idols, all our complaining, all our entitlement, all our luxuries, all our self-obsession, all our wants, all our ridiculous temporal desires, and we're just always bringing these to the forefront, saying, God, meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs, and all the sense, losing the sense of his holiness and his wonder and his awe and his perfect righteousness. And therefore forfeiting a true sense of brokenness and repentance and honestly God's presence. To fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord is a fountain of life. To fear the Lord is the difference maker for many church that's going to truly be used. I'm not preaching at you right now, man. I'm just joining with you. And I'm telling you, the more we get doctrines like this, uh, we're not so quick to stand up and say, wow, look how great I am. We're very quick to get as low as we can and say, I cannot, I cannot believe that Jesus has saved me. I cannot believe that he was willing to suffer the wrath of God for, my, for me, that I may now be in his favor. The first question is what? The answer is propitiation. The second question is this, who? And the answer is whom? Whom? And the whom, of course, in our text is Jesus. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Our immediate context, look at verse 23. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And notice again it says, and are justified by his grace, circle, as a gift, underline, through redemption next week, underline, that is in Christ Jesus, whom, whom God put forward as propitiation. A week ago, I was preaching at our sister church in Whitby, Redemption Durham. I got up Sunday morning, and I was at 7 a.m. driving over there 
from Burlington to Whitby. Didn't realize how far that was. It snowed that day, figures. And I remember driving across the 401, which to my shock and awe was uncongested. And you're driving across the city, and you're, when you go from like here, Burlington, to Whitby, you realize you're passing through and had a sweet time with the Lord. But at the same time, so aware, I'm literally driving through millions and millions and millions of people. And you drive across the 401, you're so thankful just to see a cross here and there. Bless these dear churches at different times and trying to elevate. But you know it's just a drop in the bucket of a sea of lostness. It kind of overwhelms you, you know. Kind of like these millions and millions of people that do not know the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. This is where I have to believe God is sovereign. Otherwise, I would just be crushed under the burden of trying to figure out, man, what do you do with all this? One life at a time, and each of us have a responsibility. But I'm driving through, and I just thought, man, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. It's found in whom? It's found in Christ. Christ is the difference maker of life. I preached at Redemption Durham, as I said, it was after the second service, and there was a, a man my age that came up to me. I knew he was my age because this was a childhood friend from my elementary school days. I had seen him once in the last 35 years. And he came up, and I was like, no way. Dunk. How did you get here? You were here for this service? So what did you think about the sermon? You know? <laughs> and like, it turns out that there's a guy that goes to Redemption Durham who knows my friend from elementary school. And this guy from Redemption Durham told him I was preaching that. And he came out. I don't think he's been in church, I don't know, in decades maybe. Whatever. He shows up and just looking at him. Just saying, wow, man, it's so good to see you. And I remember just saying, looking at him and just saying, listen, man, whatever you take away from anything today, just know this. Jesus is the answer. Whatever you're searching for in life, Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to life over death. He's the answer to forgiveness of your sins. He's the answer for hope. He's the answer for purpose. He's the answer for meaning. Whatever you take away, just understand Jesus is the answer when it comes to understanding the path and purpose and meaning of life. If you find out the answer to that question, he's your answer, then you will never, ever regret it again. Jesus, Jesus is the answer. Who's that for right now? Who's here right now? There are some of you right now. There are some of you right now. You know you're not saved, and God has brought you here for this moment. Some of you have been attending this church for weeks or months. Some of you playing a game maybe for decades. I'm just telling you, in the name of Jesus Christ right now, that you would turn by faith right now, that you would receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you would cry out to him and you would say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I turn from my sin. I believe, I believe you lived, died, and you rose again for me, that your love will overcome all of my sin. And right now, this is your moment. Right now, this is your moment. And Holy Spirit, you are working to open eyes. And you are turning men and women and children. I'm telling you, I'm just like, like you're here right now and the Lord is speaking to you. Do not resist him. Do not resist his love. Don't you want life to be seen and lived as it's meant to be lived in the awareness and love and light of Christ? This is your opportunity. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Receive all that is found in Jesus Christ. The answer is in Jesus. 
He gives you everlasting life. He causes you to have abundant peace. He's the one that allows the hardest parts of life and death itself to be overcome because of the hope we have in him for the afterlife. It's all found in Jesus because he came and gave his life as a propitiation and drank the cup of wrath that you and I would not have to. That's the opportunity today. The question is who and the answer is Jesus. Question number three, why? The answer is found, God put forward. God put forward, which equals love. Again, look at verse 25. Notice, whom God, what a phrase, God put forward. Let's stop right there. Think about that. God put forward. God the Father in the solution to our sin and therefore rightly deserving God's wrath, the solution is the love of God in the Son of God. Remember, remember too, okay? And Jesus wasn't like, I don't want to do this, man. I don't want to do this. Jesus in John 10 says, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down of my own accord. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says of the Holy Spirit's role in the crucifixion. Through the eternal capital S Spirit, Jesus offered himself without blemish. So what you have, what, this is how profound God's love is. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in a Trinitarian explosion of love. All three come together as one God and three persons and they're all in with Christ dying and suffering and giving himself and paying the penalty. Father, Son, Holy Spirit all together at the cross at that moment as the greatest expression of love the world has ever, ever seen. That is what he did for you and I at the cross of Jesus Christ because God put forward Be humbled by that. God initiated. God acted. God sent his son to die for you and I. How do you properly articulate that love? And I, I, I have a quote I want to put up here by a man named, I believe his name, yes, Charles Cranfield. This is heavy. God help us understand. I'm going to go through it slowly. Because when we get this, this is, this is theology that leads to love. God, because in his mercy, he willed to forgive sinful men. And being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously. Now watch this, okay? How does God forgive us righteously? He can't forgive us righteously if he condones our sin. Because he's righteous and holy, he must, he must punish sin. Otherwise, he's not perfect and holy and just. The penalty must be paid. Now, I put a pause in here. I had two of our graphic team this week uh, say to me, are you sure you want this in here? Or is that just like your own kind of word? No, no, I want it in here because I want us to take a break right here, make sure we understand what's happening. And for my own reminder as well. God can't condone our sin and forgive us. So sin must be dealt with, right? The second half then of this phrase. He then purposed, watch this, he then purposed to direct, direct against his own very self 
in the person of his son, the full weight of that righteous wrath, which we deserve. See what's happening here? The only way God could actually deal with sin and cause it to be righteously dealt with and paid for was the sacrifice of himself. The only way sin gets paid for, he can't look at us because we're sinful. And he can't say, it's okay, you're all right, I'll just forget about it. No, sin has to be. The only way God deals with sin is by sacrificing his very own son. Because he's the only one who's perfect. Is there any greater expression of love ever known? This is what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was willing to do for you and me. You know in life, a lot of the times we ask God why. God, why me? God, why has this situation been allowed to happen? God, why am I going through this trial? God, why is this situation again come upon? God, how come I'm not getting what I thought I should get? Why, why? God, are you there for me? God, how come I feel you're distant? Why, why, why? So many times in life, again, I do it too, and we're looking up at God, and we're almost complaining, saying, God, why, why, why? Can we just put those whys aside for a second? Can we just, as, as legitimate as they may be, can we just put them aside for a second, and can we just take the next several days or season to look up to God and ask a different why? Can we just put aside all our self-interest, put aside all our, our petty things, put aside even the things that are meaningful, we just put them aside just, just for a moment, and can we look up, and can we ask the question, why again, why God? But in terms of why, why would you send your son? Can we stare at the cross for a moment and just, and just ask the question, why? Why, 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 when I, my whole life was so riddled with sin and such an intentional rejection of God, such an adamant and blatant uh, worship of self and love for sin. Why would you, why would you save me? Like, honestly, God, why would you save me? Why? That's a healthy why. And that's a why I pray we would ask more than the other whys. Why would you do this for me, God? Why would you do this for us? And the answer comes back in a word. And the answer is love. Ready, ready, ready? I mean, who's this for right now? God says, I love you so much. I love you. Hear it again. God says, I love you that I gave my son for you, that you may never die. Someone needs to hear that again, because you don't believe it. God says, I love you. That's why. It's not by what you did or didn't do. It's what I did, God says. It's what my son did. It's what the Holy Spirit did. Because I love you, and nothing will ever separate you from my love. That's the power of understanding the doctrine of propitiation, the extent and the depths that Jesus would go to because of his love for us. What, who, why, and question number four then is how. How, and the phrase in verse 25 is, by his blood, payment 
This is how. How, did this, how was this accomplished? By his blood. Right in the text. By his blood. Now, that phrase, by his blood, that's a, a phrase we sing, we say, I've been washed by the blood of Jesus, but what does it mean? Why is it by his blood? Well, think about Blood is the basis of life. It's blood that circulates in the heart and the arteries and capillaries and veins. It's blood that oxygenates again through our body and supplies us and removes again the bad and brings again the good. So blood is life, loved ones. Blood is life. Without blood, there is no life. That's why the shedding of blood is the shedding of life. So the whole principle in the atonement is the shedding of blood. Atonement is, ready? Atonement is life for life. Christ gives his life that we might have life. That's the atonement. That's why he sheds his blood, because blood is life. There is no life apart from blood. One life must be given. And one life must be taken for another life to live. The sacrifice then of blood. See, animal blood will never suffice. Our blood, because we're, we're sinful, will never do. You need the blood of a perfect one. You need the life of the Lamb of God. His blood and his blood alone is sufficient to save. Think about it then. That's why today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I mean, just think, when Jesus, when he is in that upper room in the Last Supper and he says to his disciples and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, like, whoa, wait a second now, which has been poured out for many. I mean, just, just stop long enough to try to let that register right now. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Isn't it so interesting? The only thing Jesus commands the church to remember again and again and again is what? His death. His atonement. Ever thought about that? The only thing we're commanded to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, Corinthians, is his death. His atonement. That's staggering to me how important it is that we reflect upon the death of Christ for you and I, his love for us for you and I, that it might humble us, that it might cause us to be so aware of relationship that we are filled again with perspective, humility, and love because the Lamb of God shed his blood as a propitiation and you have eternal life then given to be granted then for us eternal life as well. Hey, just discipline yourself today, church. Just discipline. When you hold the cup of the bread and the juice, listen, if you're, I'm going to say this today. If you're not there today, if your heart, if you, if you are engrossed in sin, if you just know that you're it just, it just, it just it, maybe today's the day to let it pass. I'm not telling you to deny the graces. I'm just, I'm just, I just, just, if we're going to receive it in a casual nature, we're going against the, the scriptures. I pray that we would have a sense of reference as we hold the symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, that we'd be so aware of his grace and so in awe to be overcome the symbol of the love, the cup of suffering and wrath 
found in his shed blood. This is also why if someone is not saved in Jesus Christ, don't take it. That's, that, that's dangerous. Don't take this if you're not saved. Don't. Because why, why would you? It has no meaning. It's for those who are alive and washed in the blood of Jesus. It's a serious thing. But when we hold it, though, we hold it. Then the, the, the gratitude of his grace, the magnitude of his love, the symbols of the appropriation of, his, of our faith in him. The last question I have is when. And the text says to be received by faith. And we add in now. To receive by faith. Here's what I want you to see, loved ones, as you look at this thing right here. Notice this. No, no, I want to go back to the other slide if you can. Just go back to the one you had up. That would be great. Just the overall outline one. Yeah, thank you. Watch this, okay? So faith here. Faith unlocks every one of these benefits in Christ. See, it's, it's to be received by faith. Faith unlocks understanding Jesus is my propitiation. Faith unlocks again Jesus himself who comes and lives within us. It's faith that unlocks again the love of God that fills my life that will never, ever, ever leave me or forsake me. It's the faith of God that accepts that by his blood I've received payment for my sins. Without faith it never happens, man. Works doesn't do this for you. Faith does. Faith does. Faith to believe that Jesus is the one who did all of this. We are called to be place our faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. When we hold the symbols of the body and blood today in the Lord's Supper, remember, remember, what's happening there is we are remembering by faith that these symbols, again, allows us to appropriate all the benefits found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an act of faith. We are reminding ourselves, this is why I live. This is my life. This is his love. This is his grace. This is his mercy. This is everything, everything I could ever want to be. By faith, I believe that. I hold these symbols. I receive them in such love and wonder and awe. Oh, may it be so. Oh, may it be so. So verse 25, one more time. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Let's keep this moment sincere, serious, and I pray, I do pray, Lord, for great reverence. I've done this already in this message, but I want to make it as crystal clear as I can. If you are here today, and today is the day of your salvation, that you want to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I beg you, I beg you, I, I, I implore you to be saved in Jesus. Where you are, call out to him right now, Jesus, um, save me from my sins. I believe I'm a sinner, and you are my Savior. Save me from my sins. Grant me everlasting life. It could be as simple as that. You receive all the blessings of Jesus by faith. It's not by doing or performing. It's not by being someone special. It's by believing. Let me ask you, um, do you know that you are truly saved in Jesus? Do you know that you know that you know? Do you know? Is Christ real in your life? 
Is the Holy Spirit active? Do you see his fruit? Do you have the assurance that you've been washed by the blood of Christ? Do you know that Christ has taken on God's wrath for you? Or is there a part of you that's, that's not sure? You can know today. You can know today. You call out. To, don't do it because your parents have done it. Don't do it because a friend. Do it because you need Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, I pray right now, you are granting salvation. That you are saving people from sin and death and the wrath of God. How more serious can this be? Yes, Lord, bring life. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness upon us today.